Tonight's episode of Legacy Battle is brought to you by Atlas Benefits. Atlas Benefits has solutions for your insurance needs. Atlas Benefits can help you obtain Medicare, health, or life insurance, and employee benefits. You can find them on the web at www.atlasbenefits.com. Or you can contact Rob Ducey or Roy Smith at 727-600-2892 and mention Legacy Battle Podcast. Atlas Benefits has all the solutions for your insurance needs. Enjoy the show. is Legacy Battle coming at you on YouTube, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to all those and join that Facebook group. Michael Adams here, Creative Legacy Battle. My panelists tonight from the Gridiron Battle Zone, Brian Kane, Penn State Collegiate All-Star, Kevin Adams, from Steelers Nation South, Rollo Cawthon. And we're joined tonight by an American sports writer. He's famous for the, the Sports Illustrated John Rocker interview back in the day. He's written uh, books on the Bears, Cowboys, Showtime Lakers, which that's a good read. Roger Clemens and the USFL. The New York Times bestselling author, Jeff Perlman. Jeff, thank you for joining us tonight. just want to say, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating or making this up at all. I'm working on a Bo Jackson book, and as I turn, I swear to God, here, my dog is eating my notes. My dog is literally <laughs> my Bo Jackson coach. I've never had this happen before in my life. Wow. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Anyway. We're, we're going to talk to Jeff after the debate about some of his uh, books and, and articles possibly too. Tonight's debate, he is a genius on this topic. It's going to be the top five United States Football League players. And this is going to be perfect because, as we all know, the USFL will be back in two weeks. So let's start this out tonight. We're going to start with the quarterbacks, Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly, we all know how good he was in, in the NFL. Uh, this guy, my my left, your right, I guess, uh, played two seasons with the Houston Gamblers in the USFL. He was selected by the Buffalo Bills in the 83 uh, draft in the first round. He was the 14th overall pick, but he decided to sign with the Gamblers instead, um, and he played with uh, the USFL until it folded. <clears throat> he was actually offered a scholarship to play linebacker in college uh, at Penn State under Paterno, my alma mater. Um, but Paterno, yeah, wanted him to play linebacker. I can't imagine if he played linebacker, if he would have had the career that he had, uh, you know, as a quarterback. But um, in two seasons in Houston, he threw for 9,842 yards and 83 touchdowns, completing 63% with an average of 8.53 yards um, per pass. Um, he was the USFL MVP in 1984 uh, when he set a league record with 5,219 yards passing and 44 touchdowns, which was his rookie year, and he won Rookie of the Year as well that year. Um, he also had one of the worst offensive lines. He was actually sacked 75 times uh, that season, 
while putting up those numbers. That is pretty impressive. You guys always talk about offensive lines. Well, he didn't have one, and he still put up those monster numbers. He was he was David Carr numbers there as far as the sacks go. Wow. Yeah. So he was more than 1,000 yards ahead of the next quarterback behind him that year uh, in passing yards. Uh, that passed uh, records by Doug Williams and Steve Young. We all know uh, Steve Young was a great quarterback as well. When Houston folded, uh, he went to New Jersey Generals, uh, but he never actually got to play a snap with them because, unfortunately, the league folded before he was able to play for them. Um, but there was a great game that was actually supposed to be televised but ABC decided to take uh, Doug Flutie's debut. And it was actually a matchup between Kelly and Steve Young. Um, turned out to be a great game. Um, Young and, and his team, LA, they went up 33-14. Uh, to 14, And there was only 10 minutes left in the game. Um, and Kelly led his team to a comeback, scoring three touchdowns in their final drives, winning 34-33. to 33. He threw for almost 600 yards that game. If you combine his time with both leagues, he threw for over 45,000 yards and 320 touchdowns. And you guys might know this guy, uh, a New York Times best-selling author, Jeff Perlman, did a list of the top 25 players and put Jim Kelly as number five. And we're doing the top five tonight, and he's definitely by far in the top five and the best quarterback to play in the USFL. Okay, well, Jeff, he, he pulled you out trying to get the vote early here, I see, but... Uh... Is Jim Kelly maybe the most recognizable name that came from the USFL that moved on afterwards? And what were your thoughts on his play? Uh, I think it would have to be either Kelly, Steve Young, or Reggie White are probably the big three as far as names and what they became in the NFL. I, I thought that was really well done. I mean, there are a few things. Number one, those stats are a little inflated because he played. Uh, they played 18-game seasons in the USFL, and the NFL was playing 16 games. The other thing that's really interesting about that team, the Houston Gamblers were run and shoot. So they basically, their offensive coordinator was Mouse Davis, who they got from Portland State. And the, uh, the Jack Pardee was their head coach. And Jack Pardee had coached in the NFL with the Chicago Bears. And his whole thing, he was, he was it's funny because I wrote a book about Walter Payton. Pardee was his first NFL coach. And in the NFL, he was completely against passing. He didn't think it went with the Bears, cold weather, blah, blah, blah. So he was all about running. He shows up in Houston, and the uh, they hire him, and then they say, oh, yeah, we already hired your offensive coordinator, by the way. So to take this job, Mouse Davis from Portland State's your offensive coordinator. He's like, who the hell is Mouse Davis? Well, he's this guy, and he doesn't really believe in running backs. So, like, the Houston Gamblers were the run and shoot. They were the introductory to football of the run and shoot. So even Kelly getting sacked that much, it's a legit number, and it certainly hurt, but he was throwing all the time nonstop. And the other thing that's interesting is that team was running mostly slants. So it was a ton of slants, zip routes, blah, 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 in and outs. And it was a really, really exciting team to watch. So um, I would say his numbers are a tiny bit inflated because of the offense. You know, the other – Steve Young wasn't running a run and shoot in L.A. Chuck Ducino wasn't in Philly. But he was freaking awesome. And you can make the argument that Jim Kelly's the best player in the U.S. about. It's a fair argument. Let's move on to our other quarterback tonight. And I got this one, so I got to go up against Jim Kelly. That's that's never going to be easy. I got Bobby A. Bear, the Cajun Cannon. So, you know, he's got a better nickname than Kelly. So let's start right there. So 83-84, he played for the Michigan Panthers. And then 85, uh, Oakland Invaders. There was uh, some sort of like cell that went on or something like that that ended up in Oakland. But um, let's go right to 1983 because this may be statistically – 
the best quarterback year, in my opinion, in, in the USFL. So he wins most outstanding quarterback and the player of the year. So the two biggest awards he gets it. He leads Michigan to the USFL championship, something they haven't seen football-wise in, in Michigan in a long time was, was a championship. So 1983, just fantastic. In 85, he also led Oakland to the finals. Now, he completed over 55% of his passes. That doesn't sound like a high number based off today's standards, but that wasn't too bad back in the day. So um, he threw for 13,000 yards, and he's the USFL all-time passing yardage leader. So he is above Kelly and, and Steve Young and, and the other quarterbacks we mentioned today. And he's got 81 touchdown passes to go with that. You know, keep in mind that was in, what, three seasons? So pretty, pretty good there. Um, and his 83, uh, and, and this was a weird stat, 83, highest passer rating and most touchdown passes in, in 1983. So that year he's just untouchable in this league. And then I just want to throw this out about Bobby. So he said that his Panthers team, this was in 1983, he said that his Panthers team could have beat the Lions in 1983. Um, so that that that's a big statement. And and he says it that he said we don't have the depth that the Detroit Lions have, but if you look at the team that we had, most of them went on to be starters in the NFL. So this was a, an NFL caliber team that they were putting out there for Michigan. So, but, you know, just one more stat. He, he won 45 games in only three seasons. And I know Jeff pointed out it's 18 game seasons, but that's a lot of wins for, for three seasons. And one, and the, his second year he was injured. The team was very injured too during that. So um, I think he is as good as Kelly. We'll see if that comes true later on, but Jeff, what are your thoughts on the Cajun, uh, Cajun can? That's a lot of C's. And uh, yeah. he didn't. He didn't have. He had a solid NFL career afterwards, but obviously not the likes of Jim Kelly. Yeah, he had a great NFL career. I mean, play, probably played for a decade. He was around a long time. Very successful. Took the Saints to the playoffs. They'd never been in the playoffs before Bobby Abair came. Um, the one thing I will say: so Bobby Abair was great. The the one thing you said that it's not off, but Kelly and Young only played two USFL seasons. Abair had three. So if Kelly had played three seasons, he probably would have been the touchdown leader by far, just because of the offense they in. What I like about Hebert a lot is he um, – nobody knew who he was. I mean, he came from a nowhere college in Louisiana. He shows up in Michigan. He's also from deep, deep, deep in the bayou, and nobody could understand what the hell he was saying in the huddle, which is really funny. <laughs> Their center was a guy named Matt Braswell who was from, I think, Mississippi. And I'm not making this up. He would translate for Hebert. Like, Hebert would be like, blah, 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 blah. And nobody – Anthony Carter's like, what the hell did he say? And Braswell would be like, no, he's saying you got to run the go route. Nobody understood what he said. Um, like, like Coach O in LSU. <laughs> exactly, exactly. He, um, he, won the first, he won the first ever championship, and it was largely because of him. Him and Anthony Carter are the best duo, you know, quarterback-wide receiver duo in the history of USFL. He went to a second championship his last year. I would argue that both those teams were not as good as the Stars teams they played, and he won the first championship um, against an inferior – against a superior team. Um, so he was great, and he's a great – great all-time USFL player and an underrated all-time NFL player. I mean, he's not an all-time great NFL player, but he had a very, very good probably decade-long career in the NFL and a really nice guy, too. So. Absolutely. And he got to go to New Orleans, which worked yeah. out well, being the Cajun. Yeah. So, all right, let's move on to running backs. We're going to go to Kelvin Bryant. Kelvin Bryant. So, Kelvin Bryant, 
Jeff Perlman's number two on his top 25 all-time lists. And I quote, I quote, he was more versatile than Herschel Walker. Kelvin Bryant out of North Carolina, when he was drafted to the, to the USFL, he was at the time the highest paid player. He made $2 million for a four-year contract, so he was the highest paid player. And he came in like gangbusters. He was in the championship game his first year, won NFL, uh, USFL MVP, uh, appeared in three US, US, USFL championship games. Um, he averaged 47 receptions in addition to his rushing totals. 423 yard receiving yards per year. Uh, he was second in rushing in 83, second in 84, and fifth in in uh, 85. And um, he was he was great. Like I've watched videos. I've watched it. I didn't remember because I was little, but I watched videos. And he was able to take a 10 yard pass and turn it into 60, take a five yard slant out of the backfield and, and turn it into a big game. So he was was as dominant as it as anybody. Um, as, the, as the stats say. So, Jeff, that's a strong statement, more versatile than Walker. I mean, is it, do you, you stick by that one? I think Kelvin Bryant, Kelvin Bryant is the best offensive player in the history of the USFL, in my opinion. And he was – Herschel Walker is a more talented player. There's no question about it. Um, I once had a really interesting – I know Walker's going to come up, but when I was working on my book about the – I wrote a book about the 90s Cowboys, and I remember – a coach telling me when Herschel Walker showed up um, that they were shocked how unathletic he was. Like everyone looked at Herschel Walker and they thought, wow, this guy's big and he's strong. But like he couldn't dribble a basketball to save his life, just as an example. Like he didn't, he wasn't super coordinated. He was just powerful and fast. And Kelvin Bryant, was, he wasn't super powerful, but he was shifty. He was fast. He had great hands out of the backfield, better than, than Herschel Walker. Um, he wasn't just a straight ahead runner. Um he played behind a really good line, and he had a really good quarterback. Walker came into the league with a lot of crap around him. But um, I just think you look at the results. A guy played in three championship games. Calvin Bryant, he was the most important player, at least offensively on those teams. So um, I'm I'm all in on team Kelvin Bryant as the best offensive player in the history of the USFL. Well, Kevin, we're going to Herschel Walker. You got to overcome what was just said. Let's, let's hear your argument. <laughs> Yeah, Walker, the 82 Heisman Trophy winner, number three, uh, right behind Bryant on uh, Perlman's list there. But if I'm looking at stats uh, between the two, Walker destroys them in yardage and touchdowns. So to say that Bryant is the better offensive player, I don't know. In, in 85, Walker destroyed Bryant by 1,200 yards in rushing. And almost doubled his touchdown count. Um, so blows him away in, in rushing yards and, and touchdowns. But he began his professional career with the New York or New Jersey Generals um, before joining the NFL. He won the rushing title in 83. He won it in 85. Bryant didn't win it at all. He won the 1985 USFL MVP award. He set the professional record single season rushing yards 2,411 yards in 1985, averaged five and a half yards per carry, and that was in 18 games, as we've mentioned previously. He accrued 5,562 yards rushing and 1,143 carries, averaging 4.87 yards per carry. 
1983, he rushed for over 1,800 yards, which was his rookie season in the USFL. Um, in his second season, he rushed for over 1,300 and caught another 500. Um, he ended with 17, 16, and 21 touchdowns in those three seasons for a total of 54 touchdowns, 5,560 yards, as I mentioned. Um, he finished USF career with about 1,500 yards receiving. If you combine his NFL and USFL, he would have been seventh all-time on the NFL rushing list. Uh, he'd be first all-time in the NFL's all-purpose yards list. Offensively, his stats were better than Bryant's. So I got to say that Walker is a better offensive player than Bryant. So stats speak a lot, Jeff, but stats aren't the bottom line all the time. So what what is your your argument against that? All right. So first of all, that was a really good argument. I thought that was really well done. And I, not to say the others weren't, but that was thorough. Um, I think, first of all, I think there's an interest off topic a little, an interesting debate to be made about Herschel Walker in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And one of the things I really hate, like really hate, is how it's the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It's not the NFL Hall of Fame. It's a Pro Football Hall of Fame. And nothing you do beforehand, like Steve Young, Jim Kelly, their USFL stats aren't even mentioned on their plaque. It's like it didn't even exist. And that freaking drives me crazy because USFL was a really good league. And I'm, I'm not saying it should be, it should have the same weight. But Herschel Walker was a very good NFL player and a great USFL player. And I do think you can make an argument um, that he's a, he's a Hall of Famer. I think my main thing is like, I was trying to think who a good example of this would be. Like a, um, you know, like in the NBA, you'll have, all right, Carmelo Anthony. Okay. If you look just at Carmelo Anthony's stats when he was with the Knicks, you'd be like, this guy's he's LeBron. He's just as good as LeBron because, look, his stats are just like LeBron's. But if you were in New York or watching Carmelo Anthony play, you're like, this guy shoots 50 times a game, you know? And <laughs> Herschel Walker was running the ball nonstop. He didn't really have a great quarterback. He had Brian Sipe for one year, but he was kind of faded at that point. Flutie was not good in the USFL. And Calvin Bryant was just a more important player for his team, the wins mattered. You know, he played in bigger games, blah, blah, blah. Herschel Walker is great. I, I can't take anything away from Herschel Walker's USFL player. I think Calvin Bryant was a slightly better USFL player. But that was a good argument. Well, you mentioned Carmel Anthony. I know we're not talking basketball, but the one thing basketball does get right is the Naismith Hall of, Hall of Fame looks at the things the players have done in other leagues, specifically the ABA. Uh, you know, we've had Rick Barry on this show, came up with a lot of stats in the ABA. So that's one thing basketball gets right. I, I do give him credit for that. But They do they do let a few questionables in, like uh, Ralph Sampson made the Basketball Hall of Fame. And I was like, look, I love Ralph Sampson, but I don't know about that one. So Maybe it's for that Just for Men commercial he does, gets the, gets the grades out or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I, I got the last running back tonight, and I, I, got a, I feel like I got a, a big uphill climb here um, going up against – these other two, but uh, so I got Gary Anderson, and uh, he's not the field goal kicker. We're talking about Gary Anderson, the running back. Played for for my town, Tampa Bay, the Tampa Bay Bandits. So I, I respect that. Um, what I will say is there was some maybe trickery as to how he ended up in the USFL and not on the San Diego Chargers right away uh, between his agent getting a, a, a football team. <laughs> to get him into the USFL, but um, I'm, we're going to have Jeff tell us a little bit more about that in a little bit. So let me just run this down from 83 to 85. Um, in 83, rushes for 516 yards. He wasn't really the main starter at running back in, in, in 83. Um, he did later on in that season 
be, basically become the starting running back and did a lot better. But he got those 500 um, plus yards on only 97 carries. So that that's a pretty impressive total. And he added four touchdowns to that. Um, but he breaks out in 84, over 1,000 yards, 19 touchdowns in 84. Leads the league in, in that category. And then his final season, 85, rushes for 1,200 yards and 16 touchdowns. And he's all USFL team that year. Um, he is the USFL's fourth leading rusher. So I'm going to throw this out. Had he been the main guy the whole season in 83, maybe he jumps up to number two. It, it, it's possible. He, Still under Walker, though, right? That. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, so, you know, I believe that he finishes probably second in uh, rushing yards and second in rushing touchdowns. So that – get a factor that in, in my opinion. Um, he's also a solid third down back. Uh, people, you know, forget that about him. In the receiving game, he added over 1,700 yards and six more touchdowns in the receiving game. So definitely versatile as well. Um, and, you know, another interesting thing to add to his greatness is that he has a sack, which was good for a 10-yard loss in the USFL. None of your running backs can pull that one out, getting the sack. So, Jeff, just your thoughts real quick on, on Gary Anderson, but also, uh, you know, tell our viewers here a little bit about that situation and how he ended up in Tampa. Yeah, so he was um, he was drafted by the Chargers with the 20th or 21st pick in 83, I think 20th. He played at Arkansas. He was great. He was kind of that, like, almost like a like a modern model of a back. Like, uh, right in show around then, a running back was, like, I mean, Earl Cam would be an extreme version, but a guy who you'd carry the slam into the line, carry the ball a bunch, or or he'd be kind of a scat back type. And Gary Anderson was this, he was 185 pounds. He had great hands out of the backfield. He was super fast. He did a lot of things really well. He's drafted by the Chargers. His agent is Jerry Argovitz, who ended up owning the Houston Gamblers. And Argovitz basically tells him there's this much better deal from the U.S. about the Tampa Bay Bandits. Gary Anderson, who is, I don't think he was, the sharpest guy in the world was like, oh, okay, so I guess that sounds good. Signs with the Tempe Bandits. The Chargers were like, wait, we offered you more money. And he's like, oh. So then he tried suing Argovitz to get out of his contract, but he couldn't because he signed his contract to play in the USFL. There's no real argument to be made that he's the best running back in the history of the USFL. But you tried your best, and that's what counts. But he, um, <laughs> he was really good, like really good, and actually a pretty good uh, NFL player who just got hurt, and he was kind of, you know, kind of light. But um, the thing about him, he was cool. He wore um, – first of all, he had an awesome Jarrett curl back when Jarrett curls mattered. Second of all, he wore goggles like Eric Dickerson at a time. And, um, and they had great uniforms in Tampa Bay. So he looked really cool doing it. He was wearing number 40. And he just was like a sleek guy with a Jarrett curl and goggles. Jarrett curl and goggles. So there's no, nothing but respect for Gary Anderson. Well, let's move on to our wide receiver, Trumaine Johnson. And let's get Brian on the board here finally. Yeah, right. I'll be on the show, guys. All right. <laughs> so, uh, so Tremaine Johnson, uh, wide receiver, six foot one, 196 pounds. Um, he played with the Chicago Blitz in 83, the Arizona Wranglers in 84. Uh, his QB, Greg Landry, said that he had more speed than Lynn Swan. Um, in 1983, Johnson led the USFL with 81 receptions. He led the league in receiving yards as well with uh, uh, 1,327, and he also had 10 touchdowns. Uh, he helped the Blitz to a 12-7 uh, and 7 record, won a playoff uh, and a playoff berth. Uh, they lost in the first round, but Tremaine scored a touchdown in the game. 
1984, Johnson had another great season, uh, this time with the Arizona Wranglers. Uh, side note, the Chicago Blitz and the Arizona Wranglers actually swapped rosters because um, the team owner was tired of traveling to the games, and so he just, like, wanted to have a closer team, I guess. So, <laughs> but anyways, back to Tremaine. He caught 90 passes uh, for 1,258 yards, 13 touchdowns. Uh, he was top five in all three categories league-wide, and he helped the Wranglers to a championship game. Uh, he was named the USFL All-Star team, uh, to the All-Star team, uh, both of his seasons, 1983-1984, um, and he was voted to the USFL all-time first team. Uh, Tremaine was really – he was an electric uh, wide receiver. Um, his QB, like I said, was Greg Landry, who was kind of streaky and inconsistent. But despite that, Tremaine had a very impressive USFL career. Uh, he ended up holding out in 1885 for, uh, with a contract dispute, and then eventually he uh, spent time with the Chargers and the Bills in the NFL. So, Jeff, uh, what are your thoughts on Tremaine? Is is he maybe number one at the wide receiver position? First of all, I love the name Tremaine Johnson, so that gives him points. You know, when you're a kid and, like, you just fall in love with names, I remember loving the name Tremaine Johnson. I also love that he played at Grambling, which I think is really cool, um, same as Doug Williams. And um, one thing is really – a couple of things that you touched on that are really interesting. Number one, it can't – I feel like it almost – you let that go without noting the weirdness of this. There's a team in Chicago in 1983, the Chicago Blitz. They're right. good. The owner, however, is a uh, – Dr. Ted Dietrich lives in Phoenix and is tired of flying nine Sundays a year to – nine weekends a year to watch the his team. So he they decide the solution to this is to swap franchises. So everyone on the Blitz moves to Arizona, becomes the new Wranglers. Everyone on the Wranglers moves to Chicago and becomes a Blitz. It's the weirdest trade, the biggest trade in the history of pro sports. It made no sense whatsoever. Um, Johnson was awesome. You're right. His quarterback was Greg Landry. He'd been a longtime NFL backup and sometimes starter. He wasn't that good. Um, Johnson was long and he was fast and he had great hands. And the thing about these guys I always find interesting. So Tremaine Johnson has these two great years in the U.S. about he goes to the NFL. It must have been so boring going to the NFL. Like you're in this league where teams are just wide open and throwing the balls and they're way ahead of the curve when it comes to offensive devices and way we're going to do things and just routes. And then you go to Buffalo and you go to San Diego and you're like, well, this sucks. It's two wide receivers, a tight end, and a fullback and a halfback. And I just think a lot of these receivers, later on, they'd be like, oh, these guys are disappointments in the NFL. No one really, it's, not, it's an unfair indictment. It, wasn't, it was the league more than the players. The league was not ready for these players. So let's, let's go to Rollo here, who sent me a, literally a last-minute change. We were expecting Mel Gray, but apparently it's going to be uh, – is it Anthony Carter? Yes. So Anthony big, Carter. Big upgrade right there. Good upgrade. Anthony Carter. So he was a small guy, 5'11", 168, but he put up big stats. Guy averaged 19 yards per catch in the USFL. Uh, his final year, in the, his final season in the NFL, he had 70 catches for 1,300 yards at 18.9 per a clip per reception and 14 touchdowns. So one of his career during the, his healthy seasons that he was in the USFL, his teams went 25-10-1, uh, and one, and they won a championship game with, with him as the, the main catalyst with Bobby Bear throwing him the ball. So we're moving upgrading from Mel Gray to Anthony Carter because – at being at 5'11", 168 as a football player and putting up those kind of stats, 
that's amazing. That's incredible. So, Jeff, you said that was a good upgrade from Mel Gray. Give us your thoughts on Anthony Carter. Uh, you did end up in the NFL a little bit afterwards. Um, to me, Anthony Carter is hands down the best receiver in the USFL. If you just talk about talent. And, I mean, he won a championship with Hebert. He was un- he was He was honestly – of all the receivers in the USFL, he was the hardest to cover. You can talk to anyone about that. He was just ridiculously hard to cover. Um, he was a huge get for the USFL in 1983. You know, he was a he was going to be a legit first round NFL draft pick. USFL gets him. That's a huge steal for that league. Um, also, I'll tell you something funny that I love. I um my I have a podcast and it's sponsored by a apparel company that makes USFL jerseys, and uh, they send me an extra. They had an Anthony Carter Michigan Panthers jersey. And they sent it to me, but it was um, it was way too small. And I, I texted Anthony Carter, and I said, I don't know if you have grandkids. He's like, I do. So I sent Anthony Carter a Miskin Panthers Anthony Carter jersey for his grandson, which gave me great, great satisfaction. He was awesome. He was an awesome NFL receiver. If you look at his numbers in the NFL, he didn't get hurt. The guy is a top-shelf, top-shelf, unique talent NFL receiver and one of the 10 best all-around receivers in the 1980s. The guy was great. All right, let's move to our only defensive player of the night and our final player of the night, Sam Mills. All right, Sam Mills, five foot nine, two hundred twenty nine pound inside linebacker, um, eighty three and eighty four with the Philadelphia Stars, then in eighty five the Baltimore Stars. Um, statistically, Sam Mills he had three interceptions in each of his uh, three USFL seasons. He also averaged uh, five QB sacks per year. Uh, that said, when evaluating this guy, uh, you got to look way beyond the numbers. Um, despite being undersized, he was a force. His defensive instincts were off the charts. He was in on almost every play. He was a great tackler. He had an endless motor. Uh, he was just such a hungry player because he had been denied opportunities uh, prior to his run in the USFL um, because of his size, and he, he wanted to make every single play count. Um, he was the unquestioned leader of the USFL's best defense. The Stars gave up 11.3 points per game in 1983, 12.5 points per game in 1984, and 14.4 points per game in 1985. Um, in all three seasons, those marks were the lowest in the league. And Mills uh, certainly had a huge impact on, on them doing that. Um, he led the Stars to a championship game appearance in 1983, and the USFL championship in 1984 and 1985. Uh, Mills was the USFL All-Star in all three of his seasons, and he was named to the USFL all, All-Time all First Team. Uh, he went on to have a very successful NFL career with uh, the Dome Patrol Saints, uh, and then the, uh, the expansion um, uh, Carolina Panthers, uh, and then he died in 2005. Uh, he actually had a little stint of coaching with the Panthers uh, as well. But, uh, yeah, just a, a really great player. I think you could probably make the case that he's the best defensive player uh, but uh, in the USFL, and I think really a top five. Jeff, that, that is my question for you tonight. He's our only defensive player on the list. Do you feel there was a defensive player that should have been on over him? Oh, no. I think Sam Mills is the best. I just want to say, first of all, that was really well done, too. Like, um, Sam Mills' story alone is insane. He played at Montclair State. That's a Division Three school in New Jersey, right? <laughs> he was in camp with the Cleveland Browns. He was cut from the Canadian Football League. He's in camp with the Cleveland Browns. Sam Ritigliano was the coach of the Browns at that point. And um, Carl Peterson was a GM of the Philadelphia Stars, his new team in the USFL. And Rit- 
even though the NFL and USFL were quote unquote enemies, that all these uh, executives knew each other. So if NFL teams were about to cut someone, they would sometimes call their USFL colleagues and say, you know, this guy's really good because they didn't want him going to another NFL team. He'd rather the guy go to a USFL team. So the Browns coach Italiano calls Carl Peterson one day and he goes, listen, we just, we're about to cut this guy named Sam Mills. You're going to look at him in street clothes and you will not want him. He's a five foot nine middle linebacker. You're not going to want him. Trust me when I say this, bring him in and give him a shot. And uh, Carl Peterson's like, I don't, this is ridiculous. I'm not signing a five. It's like, trust me, just trust me. They bring him in. The guy was ridiculous. I mean, he's just ridiculous. He was, he's the best defensive player in the USFL. In my opinion, he was the best or the most important player in the USFL. He should be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He's been on the ballot. He's never made it. I think it's total bullshit, to be honest with you. It really bothers me. Um, the USFL, the uh, Hall, Pro Football Hall of Fame does this with far too many players now where they end up getting in after they're dead. And, you know, they have the ceremony. They show the crying family members. And they do the classical music. And the freaking person who should have been there for that moment isn't there because some committee decided it had to take 15 years for him to get in. Sam Mills is a Hall of Famer, best player in the USFL. I'm all in on that guy. Before we move into our vote, let's throw out shout outs tonight to the team, the, excuse me, the players that just missed our, our top eight. We're going to vote our top five in a second here. But uh, Mel Gray, who I thought was going to be represented tonight, Ricky Sanders, Reggie White, Luther Bradley, and Chuck Fusina. So pretty good player list there. Uh, just missed out tonight. So let's move into our vote. Kevin, you're in my top left corner. So uh, you got first vote tonight. Who are you picking for top five? Um, well, I mean, I don't want to take the easy one because that's, I mean, we all know Mills is going to be on this list. So I'm going to go, I'm actually going to go pick out of the wide receivers. And the stats, you know, I'm, I'm big on stats. And Johnson was literally only like 400 yards less than Carter and played one less season than him. And was only about four touchdowns behind him, too. If Johnson would have played that third season, he would have passed him like 99.99% unless we got injured, he would have passed him. Uh, so I, I just feel Johnson was a more uh, impact player in the wide receiver position. So I'm actually going to take Johnson over Carter. Brian. Um, well, I mean, really, when I think of the USFL, uh, first guy that comes to mind, Jim Kelly. I mean, he ran that exotic offense, uh, piled up all those numbers. Uh, so that's going to that's gonna be the guy I'm going to go with, Jim Kelly. Bravo. I'm going to go with Herschel Walker. Because when I was a kid, he was one of the, the, the players that I tried. When I played running back, he was one of the players that I tried to run like. Full speed ahead, no take no prisoners. So that's that's why I, uh, I choose. You also had the tearaway jerseys in college which are really cool I don't know if you remember like he'd be he'd be walking off the field and like half the jerseys Bo Jackson same way would be dangling off him and it actually looked insanely cool yeah I remember that Earl Campbell run where he oh gets yeah his, where he gets his jersey pulled off too I think I was against Dallas if I'm not mistaken but yeah Miami. That was, that was great. It was Miami it was Miami oh Miami okay yeah Miami yeah you guys made it easy for me <laughs> I'm gonna take Sam Mills <laughs> I mean obviously the only defensive player on our list but as Jeff concurred with Brian, the best defensive player in league history. You can't not have that guy on a top five list. So, Jeff, we're going to go to you. That leaves you Kelvin Bryant, Bobby Bear, Gary Anderson, 
and Anthony Carter. Wait, so I have to pick one of those four? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll go uh, I'll go Calvin Bryant. I'll go Calvin Bryant. I just think he was – you know, I will say one thing also. Like, you can't only look at the numbers when you look at old these. And I feel like nowadays we tend to do this, all of us, not myself included. We'll be like, well, look, blah, blah, blah. Of course Russell Westbrook is better than Oscar Robertson because, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, but you kind of had to see the actual thing going on. And if you saw Calvin Bryant – um, he was hard. He was hard to ignore. You know, a guy could just freaking play and was really important. So, so legacy battles top five USFL players: Tremaine Johnson, Jim Kelly, Herschel Walker, Sam Mills, Kelvin Bryant. So we're going to move into our Q and A here. But before we do that, Jeff, uh, tell us where we can find your podcast. What it's called? It's called uh, Two Writers Sling and Yang, and it's uh, it's a journalism podcast. Every week, I interview a different writer and talk, you know, journalism. It's available where all your podcast needs are found which is to say everywhere excellent all right let's move into our q a and um let's see who got two on the list tonight me and brian you and brian brian first first question go ahead okay well um there may be some folks out there uh who don't know why the usfl folded um and may not realize that former u.s president uh, donald trump played a significant role in that um, would you explain Trump's miscalculation, I would call it, um, which which brought the end to the league? I would actually not say it's a miscalculation. I'd say it was actually very oddly very calculated. So basically, Trump owned the New Jersey Generals for two years. He bought it after the first season from a guy who wanted to sell. And um, he um, his whole goal was to get an NFL franchise. He tried to get behind the Baltimore Colts, failed. Uh, later on, Patriots failed, Bills failed. Because to him, the NFL was sort of, you know, it was old money, rich guys. And it meant something. It was a very exclusive club to be an NFL owner. The Roonies and the Maras and the Hallises, blah, blah, blah. So um, he thought, all right, I'm going to buy into this league and I'm going to wind up with an NFL franchise. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy this New Jersey franchise. The Giants and Jets had both relocated to New Jersey. I'm going to buy this team. We're going to force a merger somehow with the NFL. I'm going to get Manhattan to build me a stadium. And we're going to have a team in New York City. Um, early on, he met with the NFL commissioner, Pete Rozelle, in a secret meeting and said, basically, what do I need to do to get an NFL franchise? I am happy to ruin this league if it will help me get an NFL franchise. And Rozelle said to him, because Rozelle knew what Trump was, he said, as long as I'm involved in the, uh, in the NFL, as long as my heirs are involved in the NFL, you will have nothing to do with this league. And Trump was undeterred. He is definitely, you know, determined. And um, he, uh, he pushed for the USFL to move to fall. That was his new thing because it was a spring football league. So he pushed, we're going to move to fall and we're going to take the NFL on directly. And he assumed what would happen is it would lead to a merger. Um, and they also, he decided what we're going to do is we're going to sue them for antitrust. Uh, basically that they were, they were uh, had a monopoly of TV in the fall as they were trying to move to fall. Long story short, it didn't work. It was stupid. They sued the NFL. It's a huge court case, huge court case. And the USFL ends up winning $3 uh, because what the, what the jury decides is, the NFL was guilty of antitrust. They were monopolizing television. But the USFL is 98% responsible for their own mess-ups. And Trump was mainly responsible for these mess-ups. And that was the death of that league. Sucks. Because I love the USFL. Right. So I, I want to ask you about one of your, your other books. I know we're talking USFL, but, uh, you know, might not get another chance to ask you this. So Three Ring Circus, uh, Kobe, Shaq, Phil. We did a, a NBA Dynasty show. That was one of the 
dynasties that was represented along with Showtime Lakers. So if Kobe and Shaq had coexisted, and, and this was something we had asked our guests that night as well, Rick Barry, if they were able to coexist, how many titles do you think they could have come up with? And, and in, in your thought, what's the main reason for the breakup? Oh, you're not going to like this answer, okay? I just don't – it's like asking, like, if, if, if I could walk to Mars – how many candy bars would I buy at Mars? And it's like, yeah, it doesn't work that way because you can't actually walk to Mars. And I just think they were incapable. Like, it wasn't like, oh, if this just works out. Like, they were just incapable. They were emotionally immature. They both needed to be the quote-unquote alpha. They did not have it in them. So, like, because I, I was asked that question a lot when I was promoting the book. And initially, I'd, I'd kind of humor the response. And I was like, I'm actually being dishonest here. Like, that's not true. It just wasn't going to happen. It could not happen. Um, so, I just think... It wasn't going to work. And the main reason, I mean, I hate to, I don't think it's disparaging the deceased, but I just think Kobe wasn't mature enough at that point. He came in, he thought he was going to be the man immediately. He didn't pass. He didn't defer. He didn't, he wasn't impressed by older teammates. He didn't think, all right, I got to follow these guys and listen. He didn't want it. He thought from the day, you know, his rookie year, he shoots the air balls against Utah in a playoff game. And it's like, he didn't care. I mean, he cared, but he was like, totally undeterred by that and that's an amazing attribute to have long term like that's why he was as great as he was because he was unafraid but to be that way at 18 years old when you're not yet really prime time ready is kind of killer so they suffered for a lot of years with a really good team but a guy who wasn't ready to be a team player good answer though and i love kobe i do i'm a fan i admire kobe but it's just the truth rollo go ahead it's 1983. You have the first pick in the USFL draft. What player were, would you be taking of all the players that you know in 83? Who would you take first pick? Now, wait. Okay, well, here's the The thing is that's interesting is the, the number one – do you know who the number one pick in the 83 draft was? It's okay if you don't. It was Dan Marino by the, uh, by the LA Express. And – that's who I would pick. I actually would pick Dan Marino with the number one pick in the USFL draft. And he um, he was negotiating with the Dolphins at the time, and he did the very smart thing, or his agent did, and he flew him out to L.A., and he met with the Express, but he had no interest in signing there, you know? Another guy who was drafted was Eric Dickerson, who was drafted by Arizona, and Eric Dickerson, mm -hmm. you know, went through wow. the whole dance and blah, blah, blah. So all those guys were drafted. Um, yeah, but I, I think Marino – I mean, Marino would have tore up the USFL, especially oh, early on. Yeah. So uh, I think Marino. Is, Do you is, imagine if he had been in Houston's offense? My oh, Lord. That was, <laughs> yeah, no. thousand yards. Yeah, it'd be great. I mean, the one thing you said, one of you guys said before that was actually kind of incorrect, no offense. The quarterbacking in the USFL that first year was dreadful. Like, it was actually really, really bad. 83, they were dredging ditches to find anyone with a pulse and an arm who could throw. It was just a bunch of retreads and, like, guys who never made it. And um, so it got really good. Ultimately, when they had Young and Doug Williams and Jim Kelly, but early on, it was it was the depths of crap. Kevin, actually, I'm glad that you brought that point up because it actually kind of segues into my question. Um, I mean, there were some questionable uh, tactics made to get some of these young studs to come over to the USFL. Um, Kind of, what do you think was the appeal in the USFL to attract those young guys like Kelly and Young and Walker? How did the USFL manage to pull them away from these NFL teams? 
Well, the biggest thing was money. You know, it was money. Like they were offering, I mean, Steve Young's contract isn't quite what it was on paper, but it was a preposterous amount of money. And Steve Young was going to be the number one draft pick by the Cincinnati Bengals. And he's negotiating with the USFL and his, uh, his agent was Lee Steinberg. And Steinberg was basically on the phone with the Bengals. And he's like, all right, we're going to give you the last chance to match this. This is what the Express is, uh, is offering. And he gave him the figures and at least, and uh, I think it was, it wasn't Paul Brown. I forgot who it was with the Bengals. It's like, you're full of shit. That's not what they're offering. He's like, no, that's what they're offering. He's like, well, we can't match that. So a lot of these guys, there's just preposterous levels of dough. Um, and the other thing was, you have to remember about the, uh, the NFL back then. Like nowadays, Trevor Lawrence is drafted. You know, he's going to be playing. Zach Wilson's drafted. You know, he's going to be playing. If you were Steve Young, Steve Young gets drafted by the Bengals back then. He's going to sit behind Ken Anderson for three years, you know? So, you know, you're Jim Kelly. You're Jim Kelly. If he goes to Buffalo immediately, he's going to be sitting behind Joe Ferguson. If you um, you went to USFL, you were starting, you were playing. It was almost like AAA baseball. It was like having a couple of seasons of AAA baseball and preparing yourself and also getting paid ridiculous gobs of money to do it. And they got to choose what teams they went to, right? Yeah, they, they, most of the guys had some input. Like Steve Young, he was basically like, where would you – Steve Young – I mean, two ones, it's funny. Steve Young, they were basically like, if we were to draft you, where would you want to go? He was like, I think I'd rather stay in L.A. So, mysteriously, he drops in the draft to L.A. And the other thing is, um, Mike Rozier, who was a Heisman Trophy winner in Nebraska, uh, was the number one pick in 84, and that draft was rigged. The commissioner went to the, the Pittsburgh Maulers, who were an expansion team, and they said, if you were to win the lottery, would you be willing to pay Mike Rozier a million dollars? And the, the Maulers are like, so basically, if we say yes, if we say yes, we win the number one pick in the draft. And the commissioner's basically like, I'm not saying that, but I'm kind of saying that. And they're like, yeah, we'd sign them. And mysteriously, the Pittsburgh Maulers got the number one pick in the draft. So, so questionable tactics, like I said. Shenanigans <laughs> of plenty in the USFL. Yeah. So, Brian, I'm going to give you last question, and then I'm going to let Jeff make some plugs, because if I, if I think I'm correct, you got seven New York Times bestselling books. Uh, so we'll, we'll let you do that after Brian's question. Go ahead. All right. Well, yeah, I was actually going to ask about the books. Um, you know, you've written books on a variety of sports topics. Uh, see if I got everybody, if I have them all on the list here, 86 Mets, Barry Bonds, 90s Cowboys, Roger Clemens, Walter Payton, 80s Lakers, Brett Favre, USFL, Kobe, uh, Kobe, uh, Shaq Lakers, and then now Bo Jackson, um, how do you go about choosing your topics? And uh, is it like based on personal interest or what you believe folks will like? Um, and which project has been your favorite? I just want to say, first of all, not only did you get the books right, you did them in chronological order, which gets you extra. All right, nice. Extra points then. I'm a cookie, man. So I'm really, I don't know if you guys are the same way. I'm really into nostalgia. Like I'm a sports nostalgist times a thousand, times a million. Um, I think of, players grow i think of the uniform colors and the players and guys like when i was a kid i loved afros and i love lamb chop sideburns i love players from the dominican republic named joaquin and jose you know like i loved all that stuff because i was a little sheltered kid in a small town and sports really did it for me and i just i loved everything about it so i like writing books that i'm nostalgic for you know like bo jackson is nostalgia central for me walter payton was nostalgic central the us of l i mean nobody my agent was like, this, nobody's going to buy this book. And Bob, you know, my, nobody wanted to publish it. And I just, I was so nostalgic for it. So um, all my subjects, the only one that wasn't was the Shaq Kobe. And it was probably the least fun I had writing a book. 
Um, Cause I didn't feel that sense of nostalgia for it. It was a little old when that those teams played. Um, what was your, did you ask my favorite? Yeah. Which one was your favorite project? Yeah. I mean, I'm really loving Bo Jackson. Like I'm really loving, I love the US of L. The US of L, I'm not just saying this because we're talking. The US of L was a, it was just a joy for me because it was such a lark and the league was ridiculous and there were a million stories and everyone was happy to talk. There wasn't anyone who was like, oh no, I can't tell my US of L stories. It was like asking someone what happened to your frat back at the university or whatever. You know, you're happy to talk about it. Um, I love Bo Jackson because I hear one insane story after another, after another, after another. You think like, all right, I've heard the most athletic, freakishly thing he did. And then someone tells you about him jumping over a car or doing three flips off a backboard or whatever. So um, those two are probably the most fun I've had, Bo and USFL. Roger Clemens was my least enjoyable experience by far, actually. Well, if you, if you love uh, nostalgia, I would love to see a WHA book. I don't like hockey. Sorry, I grew up an Islanders fan, but I'm not a big hockey guy. Anymore. Oh, I see. That's bad, too. We, we did a WHA uh, Mount Rushmore show. We had uh, their greatest player on, Andre Lacroix. So that was. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. but uh, yeah, so I want to give you a chance here to plug your books, tell people where they can get them, and, and, and throw that podcast out there one more time, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're available on Amazon. I have a website, jeffperlman.com. And uh, Bo Jackson book is coming out next year, I think next fall. And my podcast is called True Writers Sling and Yang, and it's uh, it's available everywhere. I appreciate you guys letting me do this. I love talking to you guys about. There's also three of them available in uh, the Hernando County Library, if anybody's watching with my county. And right also now, plenty, so. plenty available at your nearby dollar store on the clearance rack for 50 cents. <laughs> you dig a little, you'll find them. There you go. Well, thank you, Jeff Perlman, for joining us tonight. Everybody, make sure you hit subscribe on whatever you're listening to this on uh, tonight so we can get those uh, member numbers up. So thank you for joining us. Have a good night.